Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for June 14th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardale, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast on major appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. The California Supreme Court seemed poised last week to answer an important question of state labor law, just what sort of penalties are entailed in California's Private Attorneys General Act. The question is critical to defendant employers alike because what penalties fall within PAGA determines whether those penalties must be sought in state courts or whether defendants can compel them into arbitration. In the case, ZB versus Lawson, the employer defendant had argued one part of the plaintiff's claim, the part seeking recovery for unpaid wages, must be arbitrated pursuant to an agreement between the parties and the Federal Arbitration Act. The plaintiff argued the opposite, that unpaid wage recovery is part and parcel of PAGA, and so pursuant to California Supreme Court law that PAGA claims can't be forced into arbitration, the plaintiff argued the lost wage piece must stay in court along with the part of the suit that also applies per violation penalties to employer defendants. But last week at oral argument, Justice Leondra Kruger seemed to present a third option, that perhaps if the lost wage part of the suit wasn't actually part of PAGA, whether that meant it needed to be dismissed outright, not sent to arbitration. That curveball resulted in the court vacating submission of the matter and calling for additional briefing on Kruger's question. Today we'll hear from two attorneys involved in the case, the plaintiff's counsel, Michael Rubin, partner with Altruler Brazon LLP will join us, as will Robert Olson, partner with Grimes Martin, Stein, and Richland LLP, who submitted an amicus supporting the defendant in the case. Two gentlemen, of course, quite disagree on much of the case, but both of them certainly concur the matter's result stands to greatly impact the nature of these private attorneys general suits going forward. Before welcoming on my first guest, let me remind you, though, as always, that CLE credit is available to listeners of this podcast. It's very easy to claim. Just go to dailyjournal.com once you've listened to the episode. Find it in our podcast library and click on the link to the short attached true-false test, which once you've completed and tendered the almost nominal fee when CLE credit can be yours. Okay, with no further preamble then, Robert Olson is a partner with Grinds, Martin, Stein, and Richland LLP in Los Angeles, and he submitted a brief in support of the employer defendant in the case argued last week. He joins me now. Robert, thanks for being on the show. You're most welcome. So this case, uh, ZB versus Lawson, is set or at least was set to, to clarify the contours of the state's Private Attorneys General Act, a law still of relatively recent vintage from 2003, I believe. It, it was set because it was argued last week and submitted, but now the court has unsubmitted the case, uh, in a you know, fairly uncommon procedural switch. So now a new round of briefing has been ordered and uh, a new question asked by the court to, to figure out whether or not the case was is another question that might be more worthy of the court's uh, attention here. Anyway, we'll get to that new question, but first, be useful to set out the, the claim in some context a bit. So here there's essentially one uh, PAGA cause of action, right? And it's for a violation of a labor code section over unpaid wages, right? Uh, yes, that's, that's my understanding. I, I don't represent either of the parties, I represent uh, an amicus, so I'm not really entrenched with the facts, but my understanding is that it is a Private Attorney General Act claim uh, on behalf of a class of co-workers for unpaid wages. Okay, and the defendant's contention, as you mentioned, are uh, an amicus in support of the employer defendant here. The contention had been that there are essentially two separable parts of the the PAGA statute or the labor code statute at issue here, uh, and one provided for recovery of unpaid wages and one provided for 
sort of penalties that could be applied to an employer that had violated the labor code by not paying those wages, um, and that the the former, the suit for the wages, that could be sent to arbitration, while the other part could not. Is that that's roughly the employer's argument? I, I think that's that's a fair summary, and the statute that the private attorney general act action was relying on or adopting is a statute labor code section 558 i believe that says if an employer does not pay wages on time they are subject to a penalty in addition to the unpaid wages and depending on the circumstances i believe it's a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars as the penalty amount you know we've your listeners have, will be familiar with, with the PAGA statute and have heard important consequential cases coming down from the California Supreme Court dealing with it. And in particular, of course, the one that most folks know, the Iskanian case, which spoke to the idea that PAGA claims are relatively immune or the PAGA claims overall cannot be forced into arbitration. So uh, is this question not been addressed by the California Supreme Court, notwithstanding those earlier cases? Well, that, that's correct, because Iskanian address, solely addressed the issue of whether a claim purely for the penalty amounts, that $100 or $200 per violation over and, and on top of the unpaid wages, it only addressed whether that claim for a penalty amount could be uh, sent to arbitration. And what the California Supreme Court has never addressed is whether in a PAGA claim you can the the private plaintiff can pursue not just these penalties on behalf of the state but their own and co-workers unpaid wages that has never been addressed by the California Supreme Court and there was a split in California Court of Appeal authority that came up to the Supreme Court in this case. Right. Yeah, I think so the Court of Appeal here sided with the plaintiff and, and referenced at least one, maybe its own ruling where it essentially held those two pieces, the penalties and the, like, say here, unpaid wages are sort of one or an inseparable uh, part of PAGA. And so, you know, where one goes, the other follows. You can't split them up and send them to different fora. So other court of appeals have held uh, in conflict with that ruling? Uh, yes. I forget what exactly district this is, but it was the same It was the same court that had the prior ruling that said, that said you could pursue the unpaid wage claims. And I believe it was the fifth district in Esperanza, I'm probably butchering the case name, that said that no, a private plaintiff could only pursue the penalty amounts under PAGA and could not pursue unpaid wages. And just sort of another contextual question about the statute. I mean, PAGA is set up to deputize employees, um, essentially to act in the role that the labor commissioner or attorney general might play in enforcing labor statutes. And so I suppose, you know, one argument on the plaintiff's side would, would go that if the labor commissioner were trying to enforce an unpaid wage situation like the one that's alleged here, then there wouldn't be a problem with needing to send some sort of unpaid wage suit into arbitration. Of course, it's a different type procedure, but the 
a labor commissioner could get the penalties that would go to the state and the wages, which would go to the aggrieved employees, right? Well, it's a little more complex than that because PAGA is one set of statutes or one statute, I believe it's labor code somewhere around 2901 or 05. And then there's the underlying substantive statute, which is labor code 558. What PAGA says is that private individuals can pursue penalties that the state could otherwise pursue. And under PAGA, when you pursue those, when the private individual pursues those penalties, the private party keeps 25% and 75% goes to the state. So the real question is, are unpaid wages penalties under Labor Code 558 that somehow get transformed into penalties that can be pursued under PAGA. So what's the core argument that they're not penalties? I mean, if they're um, assessed against the company, they are, at least sort of using the phrase in a more common manner, that you know, that's penalizing the company. So what makes a, a penalty as opposed to, you know, what, what is the unpaid wage then? Well, there are a couple there are a couple things as far as the uh, specific statute at issue 558 talks about the penalties I think it's a hundred dollar and a two hundred dollar amount in addition to unpaid wages the language of the statute itself treats it as if unpaid wages are something different than penalties and frankly the PAGA statute that says the penalties go, 25% to the individual plaintiff and 75% to the state, the plaintiffs aren't contending that the unpaid wages go 75% to the state and 25% to the private individual who's brought the PAGA action. Indeed, I think that would probably be a due process problem because those are compensation for individuals' labors and efforts. And so if they're not divided up 25 75% under PAGA, as penalties have to be divided up, that means they're probably not penalties. Drilling down just a, a bit on that, I mean, would you argue that to some extent the basis of the of Iskanian, the idea that you know, the state, the attorney general, couldn't be hauled into arbitration over enforcing its labor codes, that's, that part of that basis was because the state was recovering some of these penalties and so you know, it had a lot of skin in the game here. And so if the situation where with the wages is it all goes back to the plaintiffs. Would you say it's sort of different than what the Iskanian court might have been trying to get at? I think the basis of Iskanian was not just that it was the state that was recovering these, but that what was being sought in Iskanian was purely the penalty amount. And so that was truly something that only belonged to the state. And in PAGA, the state shares a civil penalty amount, something that is over and above unpaid wages that belongs solely to the state, and it shares it with a private person who's bringing the action. But it is and always has been purely the state's right to the civil penalty. That's not true of unpaid wages. Can I ask you a question about, you know, how much is at stake when, as it pertains to the answer to this question? Because it certainly seems like the incentive to bring a pocket claim would be diminished for plaintiffs if 
they knew that you know all that could be possibly recovered is 25% of the penalties. I mean, I assume these penalties can add up. I think they're based on sort of per violation. But still, if you know damages like unpaid wages aren't part of PAGA, I imagine the incentive is, is lower to decent amount. Is that fair to say? I think by definition, if you can recover less, the incentive is somehow reduced. But as you say, the penalties can be quite significant. And the fact of the matter is that the trial courts right now are being swamped by PAGA claims that have been using the idea that PAGA can be used as an ERSAT class action without meeting the requirements of a class action. There is still a way for a individual plaintiff to pursue unpaid wages on behalf of a class of co-workers. It's the traditional class action. And, you know, of course, if an employee had, of course, contracted away the right to, to bring a class action, though, and, of course, had submitted to individual arbitration, that would, would block that route. In terms of arbitration, you know, what work does the Federal Arbitration Act do here? And it's obviously central to the defendant's claim that that's requiring this piece to go to the arbitration. Obviously, you know, Iskanian refers to the fact that PAGA, you know, can be immune to at least some extent from the FAA. So just in this case, what's the argument that sounds from the, the FAA here? The United States Supreme Court has made quite clear that unpaid wage claims that are subject to an arbitration agreement are to be sent to arbitration. Now, Iskanian said that Iskanian essentially said that's true of unpaid wage claims, but it's not true of PAGA penalty claims. And that issue, I think, may still be a live issue. The United States Supreme Court, I believe, cert was denied in Iskanian, but that doesn't mean that someone else may uh, may not pursue that. But what I think is clear can't happen under the United States Supreme Court precedent is the state can't say, okay, there are unpaid wage claims. They're subject to an arbitration provision. We're going to essentially assign them to the state to recover on behalf of the individuals. And now we're going to assign them back to an individual to pursue on our behalf, on behalf of individual employees in the first place, and that somehow that strips out an arbitration provision. I, I don't think it is within any intent of the FAA that a state can set up a scheme whereby arbitration provisions are laundered out of contracts by first assigning them to the state and then having the state assign them back to the same individuals. Okay. Then just a couple of questions about the most recent procedural development here. At oral argument, uh, a question came from Justice Kruger that seemed to a bit come out of left field. So uh, up to this point, the, arg the argument has either been all these claims, unpaid wages and pocket penalties together stay in court or the penalties stay in court and the unpaid wage claim goes to arbitration. But Justice Kruger said to the attorney representing the defendant here that, you know, isn't in essence what you're saying is these unpaid wages claims aren't really part of PAGA. And so what you're asking for in essence is they should be dismissed. Is that, can you describe that uh, exchange to me? I think that's probably a fair reading. I don't think that comes out of left field. I agree that was not a focus of the party's briefing. However, our amicus brief on behalf of the California Car Dealers Association 
certainly made that point loud and clear that the problem was that unpaid wage claims were not part of a PAGA claim of action, cause of action in the first place. And then the California Chamber of Commerce amicus brief about a week later echoed the same theme. So the theory, the concept that unpaid wages were not part of the PAGA claim in the first place was, was clearly presented probably a year ago before when when briefing was uh, finalized. I, I think that Justice Kruger picked up on that concept. I think it's the it's really kind of the fundamental threshold issue that you need to that one needs to reach first before one tries to go on and decide what should or shouldn't be subject to an arbitration provision. Justice Kruger picked up on that and the court's letter which is unusual but certainly not unprecedented. I've seen them in other cases. The court's letter suggests that the court is at least open to exploring uh, that possibility as a uh, foundational question. And as I said, there's already existing California Court of Appeal authority that supports that position. There was a conflict at that in that authority on the issue going before the California Supreme Court. Okay. Um, so I guess what would the APAGA action look like were the Supreme Court to uh, take up this new question and say the unpaid wage claims are, are not correctly part of it? They shouldn't be um, appended to the APAGA claim. Is the claim only, hey, there has been a violation of the labor code, and so we're acting on behalf of the state to try to get these penalties assigned? And that's, that's it? The, the PAGA action would be there were X number of uh, labor code violations, and certainly plaintiffs have set those numbers at uh, high digits, several zeros. And it would say there are there have been a thousand violations, and the penalties are two hundred dollars per violation. In this instance, I'm suing for 200000 to collect the $200,000 in penalties. Because this case has been on appeal for you know a couple of years and, and there's been a lot of briefing, as you mentioned, you know, the issue came up in, in some of the briefing, but hadn't been addressed really by the, lo- the lower courts to, to hear the case. You know, it seems like the kind of thing that might prompt the court to go ahead and uh, let this appeal kind of go past it and wait for another case that presents the question squarely. On the other hand, you know, clearly the court is interested in this question, so maybe it intends to, you know, to, to get to the bottom of it. Do you have a sense of what's more likely that, that when the changes comes at this late hour, the court would, would balk or would go ahead and, and try to answer the question? Well, I would think that in this instance, they would want to answer the question for a couple of reasons. One, the availability of PAGA to pursue as a mechanism to pursue unpaid wage claims was an express holding of the Court of Appeal decision in this case, expressly following the same court's prior published decision on the case and in direct disagreement with the Fifth District's express holding that you can't pursue unpaid wage claims as part of PAGA. So, the conflict is out there. The court ought to take this opportunity to resolve it. 
The second thing is that it is a predicate question to the question of what parts should be arbitrable or not. You really can't address, the court really can't address which parts of a PAGA claim are or are not arbitrable until it defines what the proper parts of a, of a PAGA claim are. So I would think that in this instance, it would be an issue that the court would address. Yeah, maybe just one last one. You know, if, as you think might be the case, the court decides to go ahead and, and answer this question and issue a, a ruling on it, do you have any inclinations as to, I know, of course, forecasting these sorts of things can be pretty hazardous, but uh, the court has been inclined, it seems, in the past to, to read the protections of PAGA fairly broadly to sort of jealously guard this statute and, and make sure it can vindicate the rights it was intended to. Do you have any thoughts on how the court might, might feel about that question? I think it really is a fool's errand to try and predict how the court will rule. I, I don't interpret this order as anything other than it is open to exploring this possibility. That said, I think the arguments that PAGA does not extend to this uh, are fairly strong on the on the face of PAGA itself and just interpreting the uh, language. Okay. Uh, well, Robert Olson is partner with Grimes, Martin, Stein, and Richland. Uh, thanks very much for being on our show. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Michael Rubin is a partner with Altshuler Burzon and argued on behalf of the plaintiff in this matter before the state high court last week. And he joins us now. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So we'll we'll dig a bit deeply into the weeds of this case in just a moment, but off the bat, I'd be curious to ask, you know, how often it's the case, and you argue before the, the California High Court and Courts of Appeals with some regularity, how often do you give an argument and the cause is submitted and, and you figure, okay, the culmination of some months and years of work is, is complete and the cause is out of my hands, only to learn you know, the next day that, in fact, uh, you know, another round of briefing is needed and, and more work is, is to be done. How, how often does it happen to you? Well, it, it's not a frequent occurrence, but it happened in the Dynamics case. Uh, where there was a question about retroactivity. As I recall, it happened in the Brinker case as well, although it may have been that the additional briefing in Brinker was just before the oral argument. I think in the, in the week or two before oral argument, the court either once or twice asked for a supplemental brief. So it's not unusual for the California Supreme Court, if it starts to rethink the issues, to ask for supplemental briefing. That this happened after oral argument is unusual, but not surprising, I think, given that the employer completely changed it, the theory of its case at the oral argument. So it's appropriate to ask for more briefing. And we'll get to the ways in which the, the theories and the arguments changed a bit, but let's start uh, back at, at the beginning. Remind me exactly kind of the, the mechanism of how this cause of action works. So your client claims a violation of a section of the labor code, and then by dint of, of that violation brings a, a private attorney's general act suit? That's right. Section 558 of the Labor Code provides that a civil penalty is available for violation of the overtime law, the meal and rest break law of California. Normally, only the Labor Commissioner can pursue a claim under Section 558, 
But because of PAGA, the Private Attorney General Act of 2004, any time the labor commissioner can pursue a civil penalty, so can the worker. So in this case, Kalithia Lawson, our client, the plaintiff, filed an action for a range of wage and hour violations, including a claim uh, under PAGA, under Section 558, for both parts of the civil penalty remedy provided. What made this case different for many was that the employer had a mandatory arbitration agreement. And the employer said, well, that's fine. The California Supreme Court law is fairly settled that a plaintiff may bring a PAGA claim on a representative action basis on behalf of all aggrieved employees in court. But one part of the remedy that Ms. Lawson is seeking, the unpaid wages portion of the civil penalty, shouldn't be treated like everything else, and that remedy has to be arbitrated. And so what this case is about is whether when an employer has a mandatory arbitration clause, especially one that bans class actions, uh, whether the unpaid wages portion of the Labor Code 558 claim has to be arbitrated or whether, like all other aspects of a PAGA civil penalty claim, it can be pursued in court, notwithstanding the existence of a mandatory arbitration agreement on the theory that a PAGA claim really belongs to the state. The state hasn't agreed to arbitrate, so an arbitration agreement between the employer and a private employee does not bind the state and does not require the employee standing in the shoes of the state to arbitrate the state's claims. And just to flag one thing for clarity here, the agreement between your client and, and the employer defendant is, in terms of mandatory arbitration was on, along the lines of individual arbitration. Did it, did it bar class arbitration? Well, it did bar class arbitration. One of the complications of this case is it actually didn't bar representative action arbitrations. And the trial court uh, initially sent the case to arbitration on a representative action basis. So one issue that's before the court is whether the employer banned or limited representative action claims at all in its arbitration agreement. I don't know if the court will reach that issue, but uh, there was a class action prohibition. Unlike most employers, this employer didn't also try to prohibit representative actions. So we don't really know how that'll play out. It seems to sort of, as you have done, you know, frame this issue um, and to zoom out a bit more and frame it more generally, it seems like there's been a, a good bit of push and pull between, on the one hand, California's PAGA law and the Forum of Arbitration and the Federal Arbitration Act, which you know recommends it, certainly in the modern Supreme Court's view, very highly. We've seen that push and pull play out, probably most notably in the Iskanian case. Our listeners will have just have heard me speak to uh, Robert Olson, who is an amicus on the other side here, and, and his view Iskanian you know, doesn't really have an answer for the question that's presented here, whether these two types of penalties, penalties and, and unpaid wages, are sort of inseparable. He believes that, that uh, Iskanian is actually, I think, more clear and says that the, the penalties are the only ones that can stay in California courts. But, but you argue that Iskanian actually is pretty clear when it comes to the idea that these two types of penalties can't be separated. Is that fair to say? I think it's fair to say really what um, our position is, you have to go back to the legislative intent. If the legislature, when it enacted 558, meant to include 
two components to the civil penalty, which is the way the statute is written and what the legislature obviously intended at the time. And if the legislature, so that was 1999, when it said the civil penalty includes unpaid wages as well as a certain amount per pay period. Then the legislature enacted PAGA in 2004 and said whenever there's a civil penalty created by a statute, like in 558, the employee can pursue it on behalf of the state. So there is clear legislative authority for what Ms. Lawson did, which is file a PAGA claim based on 558 for both elements of the civil penalty created by Section 558. What the defendant argued is that, well, even though Ascanian is clear that a PAGA case can't be compelled to arbitration without the state's approval because it's a state's case, there's some sort of a subterfuge going on here. The legislature acted improperly by allowing unpaid wages uh, to be considered part of the civil penalty because that's really an end around uh, the Federal Arbitration Act. Obviously, the legislature wasn't thinking about the Federal Arbitration Act back in 1999. So it's sort of an after-the-fact construct that the employers try to impose on the whole thing. As a matter of legislative intent, Ms. Lawson did exactly what she should do, what the Supreme Court and the legislature said she could do. And the question we thought that was before the California Supreme Court was, should Ascanian by its terms apply, or should there be a carve-out for the certain type of civil penalty that the legislature enacted in 558, which includes unpaid wages? That was the issue that we had all briefed uh, and that we've been arguing over for the past several years. Sure. Um, aside from Ascanian, I wanted to put one other important case law on the table that you referenced a good bit in, in your briefing, the McGill versus Citibank case also mm-hmm. um, sure. related here. What does that provide for in, in relation to the, the issue here? McGill, another unanimous California Supreme Court case, said that an employer cannot strip someone through a mandatory arbitration agreement or any other contract of a public law right. So, for example, in McGill, if, if you're seeking a public injunction, that is an injunction to enforce fundamental, non-waivable statutory rights, rights that were enacted to protect not just individuals, but the public of the state of California, an employer or a company in the consumer context uh, cannot force you to give up that right by precluding, for example, by requiring arbitration and precluding the arbitrator from granting relief to anyone other than the individual. So McGill arose in the context of an arbitration agreement that said there can only be individual arbitration and the arbitrator can only provide remedies to the individual. What the Supreme Court said was that, wait a second, that effectively strips the individual of the right that the legislature, by statute, granted to the individual to seek injunctive relief that benefits the public. You can't uh, interfere with the legislature's intent to create this enforceable public law right by preventing public injunctions, and therefore the court struck down that provision in the arbitration agreement. In uh, The principle of McGill is that if you have a law created for the public interest and a remedy that would serve the public interest, neither by arbitration agreement or any other type of contract may an employer prohibit 
its workers from exercising that right. And in this case, uh, to the extent the employer did ban representative actions, and again, that's an open question on the facts of this case, but if, if ZB Bank did ban representative PAGA actions, then that violates McGill. While ZB said that, that Ms. Lawson could pursue an individual PAGA claim, the, the case law is uniform among the Court of Appeals and language and Supreme Court decisions. There's no such thing as an individual PAGA claim. It's a representative action on behalf of the state and for the benefit of other employees. So to say that she can only arbitrate PAGA on an individual basis for her own personal unpaid wages claim only, essentially ZB Bank is saying you can't pursue a PAGA representative action, and that violates squarely the principles set forth in McGill. Okay, so you know, obviously all that precedent and the, the statutory language and, and history is uh, critically important in, in, in cases, and in, in this case certainly. But you setting them aside for just a second and, and describing in a more general sense what's going on, I, th- I think folks might approach the case and hear the two different types of remedies, one being uh, the recovery of, of lost wages that weren't paid, and the other, the infliction of these like per-violation fines, and say, you know, those latter ones do sort of sound like what you think of when you think of penalties, and the former sound sort of more like damages, and, and you don't... You know, damages and penalties sort of, it seems like, in legal parlance aren't really synonyms. You know, is that something that you've been arguing against? Does that make any sense, what I'm you know, describing? Sure, sure. And there's a case, Murphy versus Kenneth Cole, that, among others, that goes into some detail about distinguishing remedies uh, as between civil penalties, statutory penalties, and statutory damages. That sort of inquiry, though, only applies where it's not clear what the legislature did. A legislative directive that something is or is not a civil penalty uh, is controlling. There's no need, uh, absent ambiguity, to try to figure out essentially what the legislature intended when the legislature makes its intent clear. So in 558, the language, as every court of appeal to look at the language has said, and that's now four or five different courts, the civil penalty includes both components. So, yeah, I understand that some people looking at unpaid wages say that customarily that's a damages remedy. In this case, though, in order to increase effective enforcement of labor code provisions, uh, the legislature made a part of the civil penalty that the labor commissioner could recover and then give to the workers So the legislature decided that in this circumstance, a remedy that is often considered a damage remedy should be treated for all purposes as a civil penalty only. And the legislature certainly had power uh, under its constitutional authority to designate it exactly that way. Just to clarify one thing related to to what you just said. So no one is disputing here, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if the labor commissioner were to take an action against the defendant or a defendant for lost wages, that that party, the labor commissioner, would be empowered to both penalize and recover lost wages and then give them to the employees, right? That's not being disputed, is it? That is not being disputed. Well, it's it's fair to say even now that's not being disputed. That's fine, yes. The only dispute then is whether, I mean, the only change is then the party is bringing the action. So if it Instead of the labor commissioner, it's a private person. The argument is 
they couldn't recover those second the the unpaid well wages. that's the that's that's the argument now the argument before from the start of this case through the petition to compel arbitration through the trial court proceedings through the court of appeal briefing uh, through the supreme court petition and the supreme court briefing was Yes, the employee could pursue those independently, but would have to do it in arbitration. Now, though, you're right. The employer's new position, adopted for the first time in oral argument, is no, the employee can't pursue those unpaid wages at all under Section 558 or PAGA. And that you know, new wrinkle is, is prompted by Justice Kruger's question at the beginning of oral argument, which seemed a bit like a curveball where she seemed generally pretty curious as to that question, whether PAGA actions do really include these two inseparable elements if brought by a private individual. So is, I guess, what, um, were you expecting that sort of line of questioning from the court? I I think it was referenced in some of the briefing, but it it certainly wasn't central, and it hadn't really, it seemed, come up at all in the Court of Appeals decision. Was it a surprise to you at all? It wasn't referenced in any of the briefing. I think that counsel for the bank recognized that Justice Kruger was correct, that if you take the employer's argument to its logical conclusion, that is, if you read Section 558 as providing a civil penalty limited to a certain payment per employee per pay period, and separately providing an unpaid wages that is not a civil penalty, then the employee would not be able to use PAGA to collect that money because it's no longer a civil penalty and PAGA is only available to recover civil penalties. But it certainly came as a surprise because neither the employer nor its amici had made that argument, and that argument was inconsistent with the position taken throughout this case this case would have never gotten to the Supreme Court if that had been the employer's argument from the get-go, because there would have been no right of appeal, regardless of how the the trial court uh, had uh, responded if there were a demur or a motion to strike the, the claim for those damages. Now, if the employer had made the argument at the outset, Ms. Lawson, and, and had prevailed, then Ms. Lawson would have had a private right of action under 558, she wouldn't have needed PAGA. Because if 558 said there's a civil penalty for the labor commissioner, and there's also a separate claim for unpaid wages, that in all likelihood create a private right of action for employees directly under 558. So Ms. Lawson could have filed her PAGA claim for the per employee per pay period monies and a separate 558 claim, or, or maybe part of that same claim, for unpaid wages. But she was deprived of that opportunity because the employer never made that argument. So I question whether the, the court is actually going to issue a decision in this case. I think one possible result is it will simply say, well, these are interesting questions, uh, and what would happen on remand is an interesting question. And no one has focused on any of these questions in the briefs because the employer didn't raise the argument to the last minute. So why don't we say that this case uh, was improvidently granted review and and wait until the next case where the parties can squarely brief these issues? I mean, from your point of view, and and how, I guess, uh, much is the focus on on that idea that, uh, hey, we haven't really had an opportunity in the years this case has been going on to to wrangle with this question, 
how much of your focus is you know addressing the actual question to to say okay if you do rule you should rule that these are part of paga and folks can can bring them i guess what's the sort of balance in in, in your mind well certainly we would love the court to rule on our favor all across the board as the Court of Appeal did and simply affirm the Court of Appeal decision, dismissing review puts us in the same spot because then the Court of Appeal decision stands. And I'm confident they were right as to our statutory construction. Uh, And the problem with accepting this last-minute argument by the employer is that no one has really thought through what rights an employee will have if the unpaid wages are considered something other than a civil penalty. Is there a private right of action? And and more importantly, who decides? If you have an arbitration agreement, then should an arbitrator decide whether there's a private right of action? Should a court decide? Uh, these are imp- important questions. The panel, the justices, asked a lot of questions about what happens if this, that, or the other. And those are questions that I think are sufficiently important that the court will want separate briefing in a case that has squarely raised those issues from the get-go. Could you help me just understand, I guess, how much is it at stake if it, as it pertains to the continued use of, of PAGA actions? If the court were to say, you know, these unpaid wages are not entailed in the civil penalties provision of PAGA, I guess how much of a dissuasion would that be to potential plaintiffs to to pursue those sorts of of claims? Well, if the employer's right, plaintiffs would not be able to pursue unpaid wages under PAGA based on 558 at all. So it's not a question of dissuading. It's a question of prohibiting. Will plaintiffs pursue PAGA claims only for the the other portion of the civil penalty in 558, uh, hopefully they will, because uh, the whole purpose of PAGA is to increase enforcement of labor code provisions, given how underfunded and understaffed the Labor Commissioner's office is. Uh, this would certainly be a blow to effective enforcement, uh, not only because it makes PAGA cases less attractive to bring, but more importantly, it prevents the employees from obtaining adequate compensation and it eliminates the deterrent effect for employers of having to pay those unpaid wages. So the economic consequences and the resulting public policy consequences would be enormous. It would also tremendously increase the burden on the labor commissioner because all of these cases that are now being pursued under PAGA to recover unpaid wages under 558, among other remedies, if that remedy were no longer available, the burden would be on the labor commissioner to bring these cases in the stead of the employees, and they still don't have the resources to do that. Okay, just one last one. Is is this the kind of case that, that the U.S. Supreme Court could potentially weighed into? I know, you know it's limited to uh, you know, when it comes to addressing issues of purely state law, but certainly we've seen a bit of a back and forth between that high federal court and our state's court with the state court pretty jealously guarding California court's ability to enforce labor statutes via PAGA. And also, on the other hand, the U.S. Supreme Court being pretty insistent that uh, if 
there's something out there that could go to arbitration, it, it should. Is this the kind of question that could be taken up by a federal court, the U.S. Supreme Court? I think the lesson we've learned is that any case involving mandatory arbitration and the potential for Federal Arbitration Act preemption is a case that the U.S. Supreme Court may look at. When the California Supreme Court, though, is construing California state law, in this case, California state statutes, the likelihood of U.S. Supreme Court review is greatly diminished because, as a threshold matter, it has to accept the state law as the state Supreme Court has articulated it. Uh, Michael Rubin from Altshuler Prison. Thanks very much for being on our show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, that's our podcast for June 14th, 2019. Thanks one more time to both of my guests, Robert Olson and Michael Rubin. Thanks also to my podcast producer here, Nick Perez. And thank you for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget, one hour of CLE credit can easily be yours for having tuned in. Find a true-false test attached to this podcast on our site. Take that. One hour of credit is yours. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>